I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. There are worse things I could do than go with a boy or two even though the neighbourhood thinks I'm trashy and no good I suppose it could be true but there are worse things I could do and the worst thing I could do for the pop craze youngsters is to carry on talking bollocks like this and deny them the final part of Chart Music episode 54. Hey up, you pop craze youngsters. Let us not fanny about. Let's get stuck in. He puts everything he's got into it, doesn't it? That's Black Sabbath right there. John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John are going straight in at number 23 this week with You're the One That I Want. And here to dance with right now, Alex and Co. with a friend of theirs called Floyd. Puts everything he's got into it, doesn't he? Says Tone, before moving on to safer ground with the next single. You're the one that I want, by John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. Born in Englewood, New Jersey in 1954 and Cambridge in 1948 respectively, John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John were paired up by Robert Stigwood in 1977 as the stars of the film version of the 1971 musical Grease. Both Travolta and Newton-John already had form as recording artists. The latter had scored seven chart hits in the UK since 1971, the last one being Sam, which got to number six in July of 1977, while the former signed a deal with RCA Records in 1976, scored a top ten hit in America with Let Her In in the same year, and released the ballad LP John Travolta, which is being rushed out over here this week, and got absolutely coated down by Melody Maker. (laughs) This single, one of two songs written specifically for the film, along with Hopelessly Devoted to You, has been put out a whole month before the film even comes out in America and almost four months before it comes out here. It entered the charts last week at number 53, and this week it soared all the way up to number 23, the highest new entry in this week's top 40. 
And because no footage has been released from the film yet, here come Legs and Co. and their mate Floyd for a bit of a jive to it. Yeah, Tony introduces Floyd like he's a cartoon character. Yeah. It's it's like like the Legs and Co. gang with an animatronic Floyd. More like (laughs) a a CGI Floyd. It's a bit dubious. But at least they're letting him on screen now. Yes. And they're relatively close to each other, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's just over time, certain old barriers just just start yeah. to be broken down. <laughs> so what do we talk about? The film or the song or the routine or the what? The phenomena of the, of Greece. First time we've dealt with Greece, unbelievably. Wow. Yeah. Let's start with the song because something really obvious struck me while I was watching this that had never really struck me before that this isn't a 50s song is it it's not like a 50s style song it's sort of got a kind of an R&B feel but the way it's produced and with these two singing it it doesn't sound like anything that was made in the 1950s or pre-Beatles 60s and the only thing on the whole world's first line dancing song isn't it (laughs) yeah but the only thing on the whole record that there is to listen to is the bass line it's Mm. it's quite a bleak record other than that it's got the drums mixed so low that they're barely there it's like nothing is supposed to distract you from the celebrities singing so yeah. there's almost nothing on the record except this leaping, hyperactive bass line that's the only thing that holds your attention. It's the whole mm. the motor of the the whole record. It's weird, isn't it? And also, yeah. when you look at Legs and Code dancing here, because this has come before the film and before the release of um, Summer Nights that had that yeah. film trailer. I mean, it was the bit out of the film, but it functioned as a mm. trailer. Uh, Legs and Co. don't feel any particular obligation to do this in 50s gear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And so it's interesting to see it distanced from this, you know what I mean? Mm. But that's what's weird, that this really, when you hear it in Greece, it should stand out as glaringly as Olivia Newton-John's anachronistic lycra leggings and bird's nest hair. But because Greece is so weird and fantastical... And just a big camp daydream. Nobody's ever really noticed this, that the climax of the film is basically the 1970s abruptly bursting in <laughs> to this yes. created yeah, yeah, yeah. fiberglass world and being greeted as a liberator, which is probably the one progressive message in Greece. Uh, but it is very jarring. And it's like the end of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And I don't (laughs) recall anybody finding it odd or even noticing at the time. Well, you can tell. I mean, it's all all the numbers in Greece, which are not part of the stage show, um, they sound nothing like the 50s. There's this, there's obviously the theme tune, you know, the Frankie Valli theme tune, which sounds nothing like the 50s, sounds like the 70s records. I I suspect that the hand jive number as well in the Grease film isn't in the actual original musical because that sounds Mm. like another disco number. This song, yeah, it's nothing to do with it. This is country pop disco in a way. Yeah. With, it's, it's kind of effective not just, I mean, new Olivia Newton-John's voice is just kind of syrupy, really, and smooth, which is fine. But I actually think, mm. for all his faults, John Travolta's got a good voice. He's got a good yes. singing voice that commands kind of attention. Yeah. He's got that kind of electric jolt to it uh, on this number. Mm. So it's, it is odd because, you know, as Taylor says, uh, Legs & Co. don't feel a need to dress 50s-ish. 
Um, Floyd shirt, I guess there's a vague 50ness to it, but it's it's the routine seems to be. I mean, it's piss poor routine, really, but it's it's conjured yeah. from a kind of half knowledge of the film. Like they've heard a f- like a couple of facts about it. Um, and that's mm. about it. But there's deeper problems with what Legs and Co are wearing, I find, in this routine. Um, <laughs> their outfits, specifically the skirts. Now, they're yes. wearing these lacy kind of mesh skirts, but some of them have got this thick band kind of around the knees at knee length. And the mesh is yeah. so super fine. A couple of them just look like they've got their knickers down. Like they've got their knickers down by their <laughs> knees. And at the first minute I was watching this, I was like, that can't be right until I realised, yeah, they're lace skirts. But they just look like they've got, yeah, their knickers down. But even at this point, that's what's odd. Like you say, the film's... Well, like someone had gone, Legs and Co, Legs and Co, can you come to the stage now, please, loves? And they, they were caught at a really bad moment. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, especially on a fuzzy 70s telly, that's what I would have been thinking, I'm sure. But um, it, it is odd that, you know, I didn't know that, Al. I knew it was before that this appearance is before it comes out in England. But this is even before mm. it comes out in America. And, yes. and yet, I remember sort of knowing this song quite a lot. Obviously, all you needed back then for hype was a bit of radio play, which it was getting. But yeah. I also seem to recall Greece being in magazines like Jackie and Looking and even fucking ginty yes. covered Greece in, in, in this you know it just seemed to be everywhere so so yeah when ginty gets involved you know it's gonna blow up don't you they don't put any old shit in you, you've got you've got to reach a standard haven't you yeah yeah absolutely but I, I, I seem to recall me and my sister knowing things about this film even before it came out in america it was obviously a film that i was too young to watch but it was one Mm. of those first films that i remember my sister going to see and it was one of those days where she stayed at the cinema all day and just went back (gasps) in time and time again to watch it like three or four times and then of course you know later on in the year stranded at the drive-in then later well absolutely (laughs) and then later in the year you know obviously the soundtrack album turns up in everyone's house and this cultural juggernaut is with us but it's odd how much we knew already Definitely, because I remember uh, around about this time we were um, we had weekly trips to the swimming pool on the next estate, and we get all get on a coach. Mm. And I remember one lad, Perry Wilkinson, who was absolutely mad into Elvis, and he read an article in the paper that said something like John Travolta is a better dancer than Fred Astaire and a better singer than Elvis Presley. And I watched him <laughs> reading this just going, well, this could go either way. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, I, I agree with that. Wow. John Travolta is a better singer than Elvis. And I just like, oh, my fucking God. As a singer, he's more like Martin Degville, who, <laughs> yeah. who was Elvis 1990. So, of course. Uh, yeah, it's close. But he's got that same sort of yelping tone yeah. to his voice that quite effective uh, in the right in the, in the right surroundings i'm confused by this because me and neil are the same age and i went to see greece wasn't it an aa though no it might uh, have been no, an, i went to see it as well uh, it must have been an a 10 no it was on at the abc in kidderminster for mm-hmm. about eight weeks and yeah. everybody <laughs> went to see it. everybody yeah, yeah. in my class went to see it and i remember as a kid thinking how come this film is so entertaining, but at the same time so completely unsatisfying? Because <laughs> at that age, I didn't quite understand, oh, it's a camp confection by 
possibly quite cokey men of a certain age but at that age I didn't really understand the camp aesthetic and being a kid in the 70s born in the 70s in Europe not America that whole time period meant nothing to me either Mm. so I was just thinking well none of this seems quite right or believable (laughs) and why is it all so deadly serious and yet on the verge of smirking all the time you know Mm, but mm. it was really confusing but this was the 50s for us you know this sort of distorted rewrite of the 50s became the 50s yeah yeah yeah. i mean it's it's essentially the um the big budget version of happy days isn't it yeah basically the 50s was represented to us like the 80s is presented to kids now in yeah. a really sort of false and dishonest and confusing way. I bloody love Greece. I still love it. I will watch it when it's on telly, and I know it off by heart. Has anyone watched Greece for this? Is research for I this? I don't need to. It's in my head permanently. No, exactly. It, the whole script yeah. is in my head permanently. You know. Yeah. Um, so it, it, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm always fond of anything where teenagers are portrayed by thirty-year-olds. You know, but um, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. I, I love the songs in Greece. I love the, I love the, I love the whole film. Um, so you know, it was one of those cultural behemoths that I was happy to eventually let you know trundle over my head. And I've been a sucker for mm. it ever since. To the point where, you know, I'm inserting phrases into conversations with students. Like, you know, the whole place is a no-parking-zone crater face. And they don't know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> there's that assumed argo with people of a certain age that we all know. You, we- you haven't said it to any of your kids, tell me about it, stud. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. But, you know, there is that. Yeah, it's a shared experience for a whole generation, Greece. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, it's yeah. there's loads wrong with it. Yeah, it's simplistic. Yeah, it's not exactly an authentic portrayal of the fifties. But in a weird way, I'll take it over something like American Graffiti every day. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's not sincere. It's not earnest. It's just a ton of yeah. fun with some good songs. I really like that film. Yeah, I mean, I researched for this episode by watching Saturday Night Fever and watching the story with Greece. No, no, no fucking need. I've been on this planet long enough and known enough women <laughs> to have seen it so many fucking times you know but there, there's something unsanitized about Greece I mean I know Olivia Newton-John's you know peachy keen and, and it's all clean looking in a sense but as a kid yeah watching teenagers drink watching teenagers sing lines about you know we won't be taking any shit because we'll be getting lots of tit all of that stuff mm. there's there is a there's a ribald edge to it, yeah, which, very I, much which so. I've always enjoyed and that I still enjoy, you know. Yeah, and you know, one of the key plot lines is, is someone going to get up the stick or not? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one of the best songs about it as well. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm not really going to wear a word against it. I, I, I think I'm not saying it's, I wasn't seeing at the age of seven with Taylor's hypercritical awareness that there was something <laughs> wrong here. <laughs> but I, I just let it roll over me. It was a ton of fun. It remains so as well. Yeah. yeah. And considering what a massive record this would turn out to be, it does sort of get thrown away here a bit. There's only yes. two minutes of mm. it. Well, do you think anybody in that studio has any idea how massive this song's going no. to be? No. No, not no, they don't, do they? Especially not the lad in the Sham 69 T-shirt with the boots and braces <laughs> and dark glasses. Yeah. And the first time we see him, he stood with his arms folded, like just motionless, looking on in disgust, mm. chomping on half a pack of Wrigley's. And then literally a couple of seconds later, it cuts back and you see him again and he's frugging and skanking wildly with this grotesque gurning expression with his skinhead mate cackling at him. And he thinks he's taking the piss and playing yeah. the fool for a laugh. 
Uh, but it's actually the least foolish he looks at any point, possibly in his whole mm. life. Um, <laughs> and there's also, because uh, you get to see an awful lot of the audience in this clip, the other highlight is this group of uh, very buxom lasses, and I hate to draw attention to that, but it leaps out at you quite unavoidably, all wearing <laughs> long Edwardian maxi skirts and oversized mm. flat caps. Like, uh, yeah, the Tetley T. Yeah, they're like the Tetley T men's girlfriends or daughters. <laughs> don't, don't, you know, hands off, or you get a teaspoon around the back of the head. <laughs> They'll put two thousand perforations in you, motherfucker. Um, yeah, it's so the, there's there's more to look at really in the kids than there is with uh, legs and Floyd in this particular routine, which mm-hmm. they don't appear to have spent very long on. I just want to, sorry, I just want to thank Taylor for letting his language there slip back to 1978, like time travel by using the word buxom. Thank you, it's Taylor. The most polite word I could think of. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think what Taylor said earlier about, you know, I think Summer Nights is the next one, yeah. isn't it? Um, a lot. That's the one where we all knew. Oh, this yeah. is what it's, this is all about. Oh, I see. This is what the film's characters are. This is going to be a juggernaut. Yeah. Um, at this point, yeah. we don't. We don't know anything. But it all. No. It all. The moment where it all became crystal clear was where it goes in that video. <laughs> I don't know when they start showing uh, the, the the film clip. Mm. To me, that is up there with um, Bohemian Rhapsody as the definitive music video. Yeah. yeah, you don't need any explanation in that video as to why they're at that fairground. You don't need no. any character explanation. It's it, it works. Everything about it. On the Shaken Shack. Yes, while they're putting the freshness yeah. back. <laughs> but when you were watching that in 1978, it was basically, obviously, a massive advert for the film. And it was just saying, come and see how they get to this point in the film. And also, John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John look amazing in that clip. They look at their yes. best, in a sense. They They don't look... Um, I mean, they look good throughout the whole film, both of them, because they're good-looking people. But at that point, that's yeah. when they're, they're best-looking, if you like, where Danny Zuko is yes. is, is most Danny Zuko. <laughs> so, um, yes. yeah, a fantastic advert for the film. So the following week, you're the one that I want soared 16 places to number six, then pounced upon the number two spot, and then assumed its place upon the summit of Mount Pop, deposing this week's number one and staying there for nine weeks weeks it would finish the year as the second biggest single of the year and when you factor in the re-release which got to number four in july of 1998 it has sold 2,072,000 copies in the uk making it the fifth biggest selling uk single of all time the follow-up summer nights got to number one at the end of September, while You're the One That I Want was still in the top 30, and the cover by Hilda Baker and Arthur Mollard was at number 22, and it stayed there for seven weeks, meaning that John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John spent 16 weeks at number one in 1978. Yeah, Riley. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, the thing is, just one more thing to say about this. We forget that 78, you know, pre-video age, really. There's not that many music videos about. Definitely a pre-MTV age. I think Grease is popular fundamentally because what it promises is two hours of, of pop music and dancing. Yes. Which you don't get anywhere else at that point. You kind of starved of it. And certainly there haven't been that many musicals for kids apart from Bugsy Malone in mm. this decade. So that's possibly why it was so popular. Um, yeah. We were starved of music and dancing. Grease gave it you. And then we got... Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Arts Club Band. <laughs> <laughs> 
There it is, that's John Travolta from Living Newton. John, you're the one that I want uh, from the film Grease that's over here very, very shortly. And Lakes and Cohen Floyd doing a marvellous uh, dance routine to that one. Here's a guy who's got a sound all of his own in Jury and the Blockheads, and what a waste. It's a number 14 this week at the top 30. I could be the driver in articulated lorry. I could be a poet, I wouldn't need to worry. Blackburn! Alone once more, shills the film before pivoting to a guy who's got a sound all of his own. It's Ian Jury and the Blockheads with What a Waste. And also, he says, it's number 14 this week in the top 30. Well, what else would it be number 14 in? A periodic table. Formed in London in 1977 from the ashes of the Loving Awareness Band and Kilburn and the High Roads, Ian Jury and the Blockheads recorded an LP and shopped it round the major labels, but were knocked back. Luckily, Jury's manager had an office next door to the recently formed Stiff Records, who immediately snapped them up and put out their debut single, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, which was banned by Radio 1 and failed to chart, and the LP, New Boots and... panties (laughs) they rose to prominence on the live stiffs tour in late 1977 with nick lowe reckless eric larry wallace and elvis costello in the attractions the plan was to rotate each act as the headliner but costello and jury were the obvious standouts and as costello was insistent on playing new stuff and cover versions jury and the blockheads became the breakout stars This is the follow-up to Sweet Gene Vincent, which failed to chart. It entered the chart four weeks ago at number 48, then began a slow pull up the charts, aided by an appearance on Top of the Pops a fortnight ago, and this week it soared 14 places to number 14. So here's a repeat of that last Top of the Pops performance. Oh, where to start with this? I mean, when this was on a fortnight ago, it absolutely dominated that episode of Top of the Pops. The one that the Thin Lizzy fan was raving about in the Mm. NME. Mm. I mean, next morning, me and my mates were absolutely fucking raving about that song. And we even forsook the usual normal game of football to stand in the middle of the playground and play at being Ian Jury. (laughs) (laughs) I was Norman Watts. And Ian Jury was bagsed uh, by my mate, who was the best fighter in our year, mm. and was also the brother of Chris Fairclough. Well, you could do that as a kid, because they're an engagingly odd collection of individuals, the blockheads. So you can, yeah. you can choose characters like this. I mean, yeah, I, as a five-year-old, I think I'd been aware of uh, Rhythm Stick, which I'd loved. But, you know, this, to me, reminds me of the crucial importance for some of us, of, of siblings when it comes to music. Yes. Because very early in the 80s, I remember my sister coming home with an Ian Jury compilation, and it just blew my tiny mind. Mm. This secret music that no one seemed to know about, songs like, mm. you know, the B-side to Rhythm Stick, there have been some clever bastards, which is just, it's like a Noel lucky Coward. Bleeders, lucky, lucky Bleeders, Lucky Bleeders. But it's, it's like a Noel Coward number, you know? And, and, yes, and, but, but fucking The Blockheads could seemingly do anything. And, and songs yeah. like Razzle in My Pocket, which which seemed, it's a brilliant story anyway, about Nick and a porn mag, in a very, mm. very clever way. But it, it, all of his songs just seem to suggest this hinterland populated by those... I don't know. I wouldn't say forgotten about by society, but just ne'er-do-wells, basically. These kind of lunatics yeah. and ranters and idiot savants. Which is why, in a way, this appearance for What a Waste 
is as odd and mind-blowing a top of the pops appearance as later we'd come to see with i don't know adamant or gary newman or soft cell or yeah. something but here it's not kind of who let the freak in but mm. it's kind of who let this alien sort of normally abnormal guy in disability yeah. is so underrepresented in pop you know in the 70s all we pretty much had um i guess would be rock robert white in his wheelchair doing daydream believer yeah. But, you know, even if you didn't know Jory's, um, you know, polio, he just seemed a genuine outsider always. Yeah. Just a bit old, a bit too old, a bit too odd, a bit too confident and a bit too intellectual to fit anywhere. But, you know, yeah. in, living a life of his own making and utterly alien to everything else in this episode, in fact, mm. and everything else going on. Yeah. When I'd heard that, Ian Jory best of, it, it, a couple of things sealed it for me. The fact that the blockheads just seem to be the funkiest band on earth. They're like yes. an Essex Steely Dan, you know, and, <laughs> and, and that jury, I mean, he's probably a unique poet. What I didn't fully appreciate back then, because I didn't have any friends from Essex, is just how Essex they were. Every person mm. I've met since from Essex has had a sort of juriness to them, in a sense. And what, mm. what the Blockheads seemed to be aiming for was totally different to, to sort of any other band then. There's no new waviness or, or sort of aggravation, really. It's slick, it's smooth, it's funky music, and they, could, they can mm. all play amazingly. It's, it's weird, because later on, much, much later on, uh, when I'm a music journalist and I'm interviewing people like um, Rodney P from London Posse and yeah. Roots Maneuver, these are guys talking about Ian Jury. Ian Jury has as much of an impact on these guys as, say, Smiley Culture does. And, yeah. and, and they learn really from people like Ian Jury that, yeah, you can talk about um, your real life and you can talk about it in your own accent. You know, um, yeah, uh, which is a revelation to some of these guys, and and it was a revelation to me at the time. By miles, I think Ian Jury's the coolest person on this show. Mm. Uh, he's always an actor and a performer as much as the frontman, but his his shtick wasn't really a shtick. It did just come across as as just him. Um, yeah. So I love this. I mean, you know, and as a kid, this would have made my eyes widen with amazement. And just mm. following all the words and being able to learn all these lines about being a ticket man at Fulham Broadway Station and all the rest yeah. of it was a delight. I've, I've loved Ian Jory's music ever, ever since this period, I think, when my sister was introducing me to him. And it, I was too young, thank God, in a sense, to dig into stuff like Plasto Patricia and stuff. But, yes. um, Plasto. Plasto, I'm sorry. Just saying, I it's the I, resident, uh, it's the resident <laughs> Londoner. The entire South is is a is a mystery <laughs> to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've since come to dig much deeper into the Blockheads' music. But yeah, if you haven't, go buy a Best of Ian Jewelry because uh, there's just so much wonder on it. You know, he lied about being from Essex. Ah, yeah. Well, I think he lived there for a bit, but he wasn't raised there. It's right, interesting. He must be the only person ever to lie about coming from Essex. <laughs> like how uh, Ian Nan used to lie about being from Newcastle. But at yeah, least yeah. that makes some sense because Newcastle's a fucking beautiful city to look at. Mm-hmm. So if you're an architecture critic, you you know, you might. But Essex, I don't know. It's it, <laughs> But I tell you what, I'm no great lover of the county of Essex, but everywhere needs its bard. And yes. it tells you something about the differences between British and American pop in this period or British and American rock in this period. Right, If Essex is the New Jersey of England, which it is, <laughs> then New Jersey got Bruce Springsteen, right? The heroicized yes. dream of the regular guy. 
Mm. Whereas Essex got someone who wasn't a regular guy at all. Yeah. And it was like, well, if he had been, no one would have been interested. I like it much better. Although the two bands of seasoned old pros, I wish I liked the Blockheads more because they're so obviously brilliant. Mm. Um, and Ian Jury's so obviously great and a, a genuinely fascinating bloke. The problem I have is they're non-hits. I, I can't listen to them. They remind me of everything I don't like about late-period kinks with this sort of unhealthy funk arrangement. And it's okay. Well, don't listen to them then, Taylor. <laughs> well, I have to try sometimes. I eventually uh, got into Steely Dan at the age of about 41 on about my fourth go and I'm glad it I'm glad I did but I love the hits right and I love this one especially not just because I haven't made a full living for 22 years so I can feel it a bit um and I just I just don't have the comfort of playing the fool in a six-piece band oh unless you count the chart music troupe of course What a waste, what a waste, podcasting don't mind. <laughs> but so yeah, I wish I had more love for the blockers, but I love this record. And I always like records that sound like TV themes, which the yeah. instrumental bits on this really do. Oh yeah, yeah like Sorry, keyboard. it's like Sorry. Yeah. yeah, if somebody yeah. told you this was by the same people who'd done the theme from Sorry, you would believe yes. them, <laughs> at least provisionally. It's not as good as the theme from Robin's Nest, but not much is. He looks the coolest fucker in the whole world. Yeah. In this yeah, episode, yeah, totally. I mean, he's just got rid of the quiffy mullet that he had in the video that made him look like Billy the Fisher's alcoholic dad. <laughs> but you look at him now, and he's properly shorn and he's got a bit of stubble. I remember watching this and at first being absolutely terrified by him, mm. but then also drawn to him. And then by the end of the song, I wanted to be him. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't get a handle on what the music was. At this time, the first question was, well, this isn't disco, so is it punk? It's it's London funk, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, to steal an insight from Tony Blackburn, he has a sound all of his own. <laughs> yes. Here's a British band who are playing funk, but not imitating funk. Yeah, Mm. and a lot of the sort of new wave groups who were influenced by funk, the whole point was they couldn't play funk, Mm. but they were using it as as a bass rather than using rock or blues just to make their music sound new. And the fact that they couldn't play funk was part of the charm of it. But the Blockheads can play funk because they're all fantastic musicians, so Mm. they just use it as part of their sound. And the song lyrics as well, I was confused by them because to me it's a song that appears to be saying rock and roll, woo, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it isn't actually, is it? I mean, it's, it sounds now that he's taken that government questionnaire that thinks Taylor ought to be a stuntman <laughs> and he's cocking his nose up at all of them for a life on the road. But then when you dig into the lyrics, it turns out that, that being in a band is only, at best, it's only slightly better than all those other jobs. Yeah. yeah. He's not saying, oh, being the ticket man at Fallen Broadway Station, what a cunt he is for doing that when he could be doing what I'm doing. Yeah. He's not really that asked about what he's doing now, is he? No, I mean, he's saying, you know, that he's mad to be that way inclined and, and that's a waste mm. as well, you know. But yes. he doesn't mind. It's, it's a nice message. Yeah. Uh, and neither does rock and roll. Yeah. Me and my mates always thought that the line, first night nerves, every one night stand, we sang it as first rate birds, every one night stand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like like Joyce McKinney and Daniela Mind Your Language and, the, you know, mm. people like that. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what, the only thing that, that detracts a little bit from this for me was that I 
purely by coincidence. I recently saw them play it live on Revolver, ah. as we were discussing earlier. And yeah, the thing about Revolver, most of the bands on it are lousy. But when you get a good one, mm. they sound amazing, mm. Yes, uh, which the Blockheads certainly did. Yeah. And so 90 seconds snipped off a mimed performance seems a little bit drab by comparison. But that's my fault for colouring outside the lines. I mean, I was I was fucked off by this performance because they cut off the best bit. Oh, they the- cut off that amazingly funky heavy bit in the middle. Um, yes. With the drums that are just so yes. gorgeous and amazing when you're a kid. You love them drums. I would have been pissed off about that. Yeah, yeah. and the, the bit where the guitar does that faded bit, you know. Yeah, because they're great musicians, they are musically detailed, their songs, in yeah. really interesting ways that you have favourite bits. You have bits that even when the re- you've just dropped the needle on the start, you know you're going to have to hear the whole thing because there's this bit three minutes in that's fucking amazing. They're one yes. of those bands, the Blockheads. Yeah, yeah. the only other thing that annoys me is uh, I try to keep concerns like this separate from musical consideration, but the blockheads are just very slightly tainted for me in retrospect by the fact that their recent lineups have included Gilad Atzmon, uh, a very good sax player who's also an extremely active and energetic anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist and Holocaust denier. Oh, no. As I say, has got nothing to do with music, but, you know, if everyone's happy to sit in a van with that for days on end, you know. (laughs) It's not quite, it's not quite, it's not quite, oh, the drummer's a Tory, is it? Well, you've got to bring politics into it. It's just music, (laughs) man. I know, call me (laughs) old-fashioned. So the following week, Water Waste jumped five places to number nine, its highest position. The follow-up, Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick, got to number one for a week in January of 1979, slipping in between YMCA by The Village People and Heart of Glass by Blondet. Jim Jury and the Blockers. How much do you to get there? And that's a number called What a Waste. The number 14, Silla Black. She always makes great records. But I think this one is an exception. I think this is a gorgeous sound. It's called Silly Boy. Here she is, Silla Black. Blackburn, still in his quarantine period, mumbles something about Ian Jury that I didn't quite catch and then tells us that the next act always makes great records, but this is an exception. (laughs) (laughs) It's his best moment in the whole episode. There are no take twos on top of the pot. Yeah, yeah. If he'd accidentally said, well, I think she always makes great records, but this one is like having liquid hyena shit pumped into your ears until your skull explodes. (laughs) Would they have stopped the camera then? No, no time. Keep going. Just... Just, the, great, the great thing about that moment is you can see it in his eyes, that mm. tiny moment of realisation <laughs> that he's fucked up and that that beta blocker bap that he had before filming <laughs> is, is, is really having some bad effects on him. But he has to roll with it and he has to continue. It's a wonderful moment, that. Yeah, realising he's fucked up again, he adds, I think this is a gorgeous sound. It's Silly Boy by Scylla Black. 
We've covered Arcilla too many times on Chart Music, and this, her 29th single release in the UK, is the follow-up to I Wanted to Call It Off, which failed to chart in the summer of 1977. It's the lead cut from her 10th LP, Modern Priscilla, which is her final project on AMI as her 15-year record deal is coming to an end. In an attempt to put her back in the charts for the first time since Baby We Can't Go Wrong got to number 36 in February of 1974, EMI have drafted in Mike Hurst, who's currently having hits of plenty with Show Waddy Wadi and the songwriting team of Dominic Bugatti and Frank Musker, who have just given Woman in Love to the Three Degrees and wrote reggae like it used to be for the <laughs> Don Gorgon himself, Paul Nicholas. <laughs> It's just come out and it isn't in the charts yet, but even though Scylla isn't a BBC woman anymore after presenting Scylla's Comedy 6 on ATV in 1975, finishing the eighth and final series of her BBC Saturday evening show Scylla in April of 1976 and then turning down the chance to be Bruce Forsyth's replacement in the Generation game, she's been welcomed back onto Top of the Pops for the last throw of the dice of her musical career. Hmm. This is it, Scylla. You better better sparkle, baby. Uh, I mean, people think there's something new about what Megan the Stallion and Cardi B are doing. But, uh, no. Look, Scylla Black is one of those strange stories that just happens sometimes, right? No talent, not likeable, personally objectionable behind the scenes, um, yes. not good-looking, not funny, no charisma, horrible voice... Mm-hmm. And they become this huge light entertainment star for 50 years. Like their yeah. appeal, it's like their appeal is at a frequency audible only to the elderly and, and the, <laughs> the pathologically tasteless. It, and Scylla Black is now one of those people that you don't have to think about very often because you don't mm. have to see or hear her very often. But that wasn't always the case. And oh, no. this is a fine example of that because nobody asked for this. Certainly Top of the Pops viewers <laughs> didn't. And here she no. is. She's like a collective punishment for being British or living <laughs> in Britain where the, the natural egalitarian instincts of ordinary people are diverted away from social change and forced through dark pipes to emerge as sort of strange quasi-threatening celebrations of obliterative mediocrity. And Celebration, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I won't. And that's the British idea <laughs> of liberation and equality. You know what I mean? Just filling the space with witlessness and just smirking faces, just like you. So there's no suggestion that there's anything greater anywhere or that you're missing out on anything. And so... As hard as I try, I can't shake the sense of this record, which is otherwise just beneath consideration, being the specially composed incidental music for that gradual shift from a vibrant post-war culture to a wilderness of pedestrianised high streets, of vape shops and wind-blown cardboard soaked in chicken grease you know and people blame thatcher for kicking that off but part of me thinks she might not have managed it without a soundtrack of Scylla black and all the other fucking national treasures who were 
culturally indistinguishable from Cilla Black. And that is my last remaining angry teenage lunatic position, but I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I mean, her latest TV show, the, the cleverly titled Cilla, was on ITV last night. And it, this is the actual episode where she forms a punk band with Frankie Howard. <laughs> Christ. You've seen the photo of that? I sent you a photo of them too. Yeah. yeah. Very Velvet Underground, isn't it? <laughs> and if they'd done it for real, it would be an improvement. I mean, I really handled Joan Sims, Nicholas Parsons and Lewis Collins were also on that episode. Don't know if they were part of the band. I really handle it a punk band. That makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> well, no, it doesn't. And, and, and this being on top of the pops doesn't really make sense. No. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of get why Silly Boy is the single choice from modern Priscilla. Mm. Um, part of me wishes it was Me and the Elephant instead, which is a truly <laughs> dreadful song from that album. That I, What's I that about? It's about going to the zoo. Um, oh, yes. Um, yes, yeah. me, I remember that now. Me and the Elephant, we still remember you. Yes. Was it like the elephant tried to mount her or something? <laughs> they had to call in a bloke with a tranquilizer gun. And, um, I'm afraid not. No, oh, God, how is this coming back to me now? I'm, I must have heard it once over 40 years ago <laughs> but it's about Scylla going to the zoo on mm. her own where she yeah, used yeah. to go with a bloke and uh, the lions forgot him and the tigers forgot yeah, him yeah, and all it. the other animals didn't give a fuck yeah yeah, yeah. presumably because they had other things on their mind like being fucking cages in a country mm. that there's a different climate to their own <laughs> but Scylla and the elephant remembered the the bloke the elephant, unfortunately, cannot forget, obviously. No. But um, that, that, I mean, yeah, that would have been a better, perhaps more interesting single. And it would have been interesting to see perhaps what Legs and, Legs and Co would have done with that song. Oh, yes. But, um, oh, it'd be Jungle Rock all over again, wouldn't it? <laughs> but she does, I mean, Scylla just does what she always does. It doesn't really matter that there's a faint disco sort of backbeat no. to what she's doing. She has this voice, this rather unlovely voice, mm. and she rests on it. She never pushes it, really. She just has this end this attitude of yeah i can do this pop singing thing but she seems to always see the whole business as a bit silly it never really feels like anything's at stake i mean even when the ghostly ectoplasmic headless saxophonists um (laughs) floats in for his solo we can never see his face it's creepy as fuck even (laughs) Mm. that can't undermine her remorseless joyless professionalism and that's mm. what we get here. And, and it is a hateful voice, Scylla's voice. I've never liked it. Yeah. Um, no. The worst traits of Morris's voice remind me massively of Scylla Black's voice. <laughs> um, it's just an unlovely thing. But I get why this is a single, I guess. I'm, I've never liked Scylla. I've never liked her storing nuts for winter slash Ronald McDonald face. <laughs> um, and I'm not really... I mean, we've all heard the terrible tales of Scylla and her monstrous yes. behaviour backstage with people to you know, and to air stewardesses and things like that. I, I, mm. I kind of, I'm not put off her by that stuff. I'd kind of expect that and almost admire that in a certain extent. Mm. But, but I and I did. I, I must admit. Look, I liked her on Blind Date. To right. me, that was her real home. Because yeah. I mean, um, the main thing it stopped her fucking singing. Um, yes. Even though its theme tune is obviously ripe for a Sweeney style, sing the title to the tune version. But there's mm. always been something unlovely about her voice. I think what I do now, salvage from that entire, I mean, it was a 50 year career, as Taylor says. Um, the one thing I'd salvage 
and, and certainly not in a kind of actually this is good way, but it, this so shit it's kind of entertaining way is those musical montage medleys she did on Surprise Surprise, mm. where where there'd just be a random bit of film of her singing yes. Happy Birthday or something to a load of squaddies, and then it, and then it <laughs> Eye of the Tiger. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> those, those kinds of things are, I guess, are salvageable. But other than that, yeah, what has she left us mm. that we cherish? Not a lot. That clip on the Christmas show when she does all night long. Oh yeah, that's oh, incredible. Yeah. <laughs> that is amazing. That's got to go in the playlist. Uh, but she was she was given Saturday nights and she was given Sunday nights for the longest yeah. time to entertain the nation, which in retrospect just seems staggering. Now. Well, she was to, to ITV and BBC as well because BBC. BBC really wanted her as well. She was what working class women were. She was the representative of the mm. working class woman. Yeah. Yeah. She's put in a very 70s situation in this song, isn't she? You can feel the whiff of the pampas grass. Her <laughs> <laughs> uh, mate's blokes coming on to her. Could be uh, Morris Gibb. Who knows? Oh. And and she's saying, oh, come on, you soft lad. You don't know what you've got. Uh, yeah. Just an inconceivable scenario. <laughs> I mean, this this world that she came out of and went back to, it's not even, you know, it's like people tend to lump old light entertainment all in together, which is yeah. not, not appropriate at all. There's a top end of light entertainment where you would see really, really talented and proficient people doing stuff they'd been doing for 40 years mm. to the point mm. where they were really fucking good at it. Yeah. And you might not like it, you might not like that sort of dancing or singing or that sort of humour, but those people were really good. And then there's like this bottom end, which it sort of slowly started to morph into through the 70s. And by the 80s, that was British Light Entertainment. Mm. And it began with people like Silla, all those shows like, you know, It's Lulu, yeah. It's Tarbuck, It's mm. John Reginald Christie, yes. <laughs> It's Dr. Martin's A-P-O-C-A-L-Y-P-S-E Apocalypse, <laughs> that one used to empty the pub. But, you know, that the only good thing that we ever got from that quarter, the only thing of any value is that clip of Bobby Davro in the stocks. Oh, uh, man. And they never even <laughs> broadcast that. I've not seen that. Oh mate, that's you've not seen. Okay, I'll arrange for you to uh, to have <laughs> it shortly. It could go I on the playlist. That. I love that clip. But this is, I mean, it's Briscoe. Yeah, yes, very much so. But it's but it's not Briscoe like the real thing. It's not even Briscoe like the Nolans. No, it's Briscoe like "Dance with Me" by Reginald Bosencake. Yes, <laughs> and it's it, in that it is just someone saying all right is this what is this how you make a disco record in it right four on the floor and then it goes Mm. and then very shortly afterwards saying okay that'll do um and it it shouldn't really be normalized like this because if people like black were limited in their careers to just like murdering standards and Mm. show tunes at the night out birmingham Mm. you know or or Chewbacca's in Portsmouth. <laughs> it's, and if that was it, you know, if all they ever were was like, and now uh, here with a beautiful number called Why Do Birds Suddenly Appear Every Time You're Near? Here she is. None of this would matter. You could ignore it. Mm. Um, but when her musical deposits upon humanity are put in the centre of the room like this, then suddenly 
exhausting as it is, you have to give a shit about it, mm -hmm. even if you don't. And but, with this audience of young people who are all smiles, like, it's okay, it's silly. Yeah. It's just a laugh. Well, it fucking isn't. Yeah, she might give us some <laughs> chocolate at the end. Yeah, I wish someone would shove a lump of chocolate in her mouth. Yeah. Or something they could convincingly claim they thought was chocolate. <laughs> Grow up, Taylor. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, no. Dear, I can't believe I'm giggling at that. But, no, the thing is, she is, she's, in a sense, always beyond critical analysis. Because, really, you know, even when back in the 60s when she's doing backrack numbers... You can't really judge Silla in terms of how she interprets a song or how she puts the song across. She doesn't put songs across. No. There's this disconnect between her and whatever she's singing. It, it's more like I open my mouth and sound comes out. Mm, she's yeah. beyond critical analysis in that in that sense. She's just in astonishingly mediocre. She's astonishingly competent. So she would cover as a nightclub singer. Mm. She is a singer, I guess. But in terms of her interpretations of songs, there is no interpretation here. Mm. The songs, I don't think she likes music much. So no. I, th I think really she sees it as a purely a vehicular entity in her right to stardom, as it were. So yeah, yeah it's kind of beyond analysis. But I think one bit of analysis I think we can all agree is, and yeah, it's fucking awful. Mm. Yeah, but it's an insult though, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? To put this on top of the pops. It's a bit oh, of, and it's like we're saying about, about James Galway. It's like I can explain this better at 4am when I'm out of my head because I can <laughs> feel it more clearly and I'm closer to the guts of it. But, you know, in this period, music was all a lot of people had. Yes. You know, mm. really the only, maybe music and fashion, you know. And top of the pops, despite the fact that everyone knew it was kind of a cheap plastic crapper armor, it was a, a rare source of hope. It was like mm. fucking magic, you know, like this illogical magic being beamed directly into your shit house from a lit up enchanted castle in Shepherd's Bush. <laughs> and it was like a reassurance, you know, that yeah. life could be more thrilling and more intriguing than anything in your street or your whole experience to date. And this is just stomping on that and saying, no, it isn't. <laughs> and people really don't get this now, right? Like, look, I don't want to sound like some ancient prick, you know, going on about what it was like in the war and, you know, <laughs> you only got a walnut for Christmas. But it's younger people don't and can't see this, right? Like, no. there's these posh young twats who live in the flat above me. And the other week, they had a party in the middle of a pandemic because they don't give a fuck about anyone else. And I was sat there getting slightly annoyed about the noise and I was pondering on, you know, whether to shout up, you're not in a converted mill house <laughs> on farmland three miles outside of Ascot now. You're on a council estate in Tower Hamlet, so fucking keep it down a bit. But it struck me, there wasn't any music. They'd been having a party for three hours and there was no music playing. Just the the sound of braying upper middle class voices, Jesus. and I should have been glad about that. Mm. Like, I should have been glad about the lack of bass frequencies rattling my shelves. But I was fucking appalled. <laughs> what sort of party is this? Yeah. I would rather hear like mm, 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 <laughs> uh, for three hours than wah, 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 yeah. right? But to them, their own stupid voices saying absolutely fuck all is the sweetest sound around it's the only thing they need to hear mm. so the point is those people don't understand this that a party without music was once unthinkable mm. because music was like the only thing the only thing and to slice off 
a quarter of Top of the Pops yeah. most weeks for this fucking horse diarrhea or James Galway's fucking flute of VD. <laughs> when kids were already starved and already patronised yeah. and mm. let down by their own tiny window in the TV schedule. It's like a backhander across the face mm-hmm. for every poor kid who tuned in out of genuine desperation. You know, because when this is over, what's next? Nothing. And they have to fucking sit through this and look at Scylla's decomposed face. And, and <laughs> I just, even now, I get angry on their behalf. <laughs> My behalf. I was one of them. I'm not as militant as you're two about this song. I mean, it's the top of the Pops Orchestra doing disco again, isn't it? But they're all, they're not that bad. Because disco is strings there, and they can handle strings. Yeah, the music's not really the issue. The issue is her. Yes. And, and her voice, you know. The, the undertow of it is not objectionable. It is her. And, and it's mm. just her self-serving nature. She cannot sing anything without it sounding like that. So, mm. yeah. I quite like the little, the little bumptious groove of it. But then she comes yeah. in and just shits all over it with her horrible, hateful voice, so, which mm. spoils it, really. Yeah, I'm sure if Dion Warwick had done a version of it, um, it would have been pretty good. Yeah, I mean, if Simon was on this episode, I feel he'd be pointing this up as the absolute genesis of Mam Disco. Yeah. Because, you know, this is real Mam's issues, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And um, he's got no chance with Scylla anyway, because as we all know, she's totally dedicated to our Bobby. Mm. Yeah. After you'd come on to her, you'd be our Bud Dwyer. <laughs> So the following week, and for every week since, Silly Boy fell to chart. <laughs> she concentrated on a full-time television and cabaret career, and this would be her last Top of the Pops appearance for 15 years when she attempted a comeback with Through the Years, which helped get it to number 54. Heavy Pencil An actor of my experience, you just get wrong dry A podcast sitcom with Anna Crilly and Tony Gardner I played, I played yeah. Edmund Gilder and he played Fanny Snatch The Observer called it a lovely thing Wonderfully funny, pitched perfectly, produced with a light touch I'm not having any more of this, I need you to pull me off immediately Heavy Pencil from Great Big Owl Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That's fantastic, don't you? That's Silly Black there. And a lovely sound called Silly Boy. At number 24, here's Sham69 and Angels with Dirty Faces. Hello, Mum. Who's on top of the pops again then, eh? Tony continues to gush over Scylla. Oh, God, that sounds right. <laughs> and then introduces us to the next single, Angels with Dirty Faces by Sham69. We've covered Sham a time or two on chart music, and this, their fourth single, is the follow-up to Borstal Breakout, which failed to chart. It's the lead-off single from their second LP, That's Life, which comes out in November, and it entered the charts two weeks ago at number 54, which merited their debut performance on Top of the Pops, which helped it move up to number 39. And this week, it soared 15 places to number 24. Yeah, Tony's overcompensating there, isn't it, with his praise of Scylla? Yeah. Very much so, mm. creep. He's really grinning and bearing it here because, you know, as we all know, uh, he hates punk even more than he hates reggae. Yeah. In fact, in an interview with Val Marriott in the Leicester Chronicle, which he started by saying he would terminate the conversation if he was asked any questions about Tessa Wyatt <laughs> and then spent the next three quarters of an hour talking about Tessa Wyatt, <laughs> he finally said, I hate the punk rock music cult. I was glad the Sex Pistols got shunned by the public. There's no excuse for disgraceful behaviour or scruffiness, particularly (laughs) by groups on television programmes like Top of the Pops. (laughs) Sex Pistols got shunned by the public. That explains the complete lack of interest shown in them in in the years since. Well, he just can't help being 100% Tony Blackburn, can he? And and mm. that's precisely what punks want to hear, I should imagine. We go on about how Top of the Pops gets people like Scylla in when, they're, when they've got no right to be on Top of the Pops because they're not in the charts. But, you know, you've got to take your hat off to them here for getting Sham 69 in when they were only at number 54. Have we? <laughs> Have we really got to take our hats off to Honestly, Al, right, with, with this song, mm. honestly, I almost downed tools. I almost went on strike. Um, really? Well, not in protest or such, but, but I found myself watching it and I found myself trying to like it, right? Because we've done Sham 69 before. Um, yes. I must admit, Jimmy Percy seems, right, like a nice bloke, okay, whose heart mm. is in the right place. And I was trying to find ways to like this, but I, I'm sorry, guys. Uh, the music's shit. The lyrics are shit. I hate <laughs> everything about it. It's just, it's just embarrassing to me, this, this song. And this band, to be honest with you, and, and the weird thing is, I don't think I hated them before. It's chart music that's made me hate them oh, no. a little bit. And, and really, I, I, I think what it is, is that for the longest time, I've associated Sham 69 with guys with their name, Sham 69, tipexed on their leather jacket. Guys who basically <laughs> have always wanted to kick my head in my whole life. Mm. So, yes, he's 
going for the gusto. He's sincere. I guess all these things we should applaud. And we should, I, I should kind of be touched by his gaucheness. But I, I can't let him mm. have his cake and eat it. I, I just find this fucking laughable shit. I'm sorry. I tried, and I have tried with Sham69, but bad associations in the past have corrupted them mm. for me a little bit to the point where I can't, I can't dig the music at all. You know, for me, if you've got fascist fans, break up the band and change your name. Um, so yeah I just I think this is the moment when I watch this because I know this is thought of as one of their best songs perhaps but I just Mm. thought this you know I would have laughed at this when I was a working music critic in the 90s even if it was and I did actually with bands like Smash but um, you Mm. know I'm not going to pretend to like this now I'm sure he's a nice fella but I don't like this at all I don't like anything about it please convince me otherwise Taylor? No, 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 no. I mean, look, you're supposed to look at this and go, it's the voice of disenfranchised working class youth. But no, this is what thick, angry people had before Brexit. (laughs) I I mean, I suppose you could say this is more constructive, but even that's debatable. Right. First of all, I hate the way he does that. Who's on top of the pops again, eh? At the start, Mm. which, which he did on every fucking TV appearance they ever made. It's pure shtick, right? He should learn. No, no, no. He did it. He did it. For, he did it two weeks ago on top of the pops. He also did it when they appeared on So It Goes, except he didn't have a proper line. So he went, "Who's on Granada TV?" There. <laughs> <laughs> what a shame he didn't turn up on the uh, Coronation Street and say that behind Elder Ogden's sofa. <laughs> But it's just, it's pure shtick. He should learn. TV eats your material. You can only mm. do these things once, and especially when it was shit anyway. If every time I was on here, if when you said hello, I went, who's on chart music again? <laughs> People get really sick of it. Next time you're on Taylor, you've got to say that. <laughs> I'm holding you to that. But it's, I mean, he's trying to be flippant as well when it so obviously really is the proudest moment of his life. Um, yes. And, you know, um, now that's what I liked about it. He demonstrated that he knew, like Mark Holmond, he knew that being on top of the pops meant that you were winning at life. Yeah. And so he's got every right to do it. I think everybody who went on top of the pops for the first time should have said, hello, mum, guess who's on top of the pops then? <laughs> yeah, Bowie had said it at the beginning of Starman. <laughs> Would have only enhanced it. In the 90s, when they got big American stars to introduce the show, they should have been made to do a Cockney accent and say, hello, mum, guess who's on top of the pops then? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm in no position to scoff considering the proudest moment of my life was when the Samaritans put the phone down on me. Um, (laughs) But it comes off as vaudeville. That's the thing. Bad vaudeville. Mm. And following Scylla Black should have given them a bit of a bump, right? And made them seem more wild and more explosive. But Mm. in fact, it kind of makes you realise how many ways in which they're like Scylla Black, like (laughs) second-rate performers with a very particular intended audience to whom they're pandering and trying to second guess and it's always hilarious to see this aggro music coming from such obvious soft lads as well (laughs) like to their credit they never pretended to be hard men as individuals but Mm. you look at their fluffy clean hair (laughs) and their mum iron shirts and 
yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I think the same of Jimmy Percy as as an individual as most people do, which is basically that poor bastard, you know. <laughs> He's just another lad who, to paraphrase Neil, had his heart in the right place and his brain <laughs> in his ass, just caught in a moment in pop history when he when someone like him could be catapulted into the light and just mm. be sort of left there wriggling. And usually him seizing that opportunity to express himself and create something despite a total lack of talent would have led to nothing worse than a few, you know, a few charmingly useless pop singles and a few kids with hangovers and ringing ears on the lathe on Monday morning. (laughs) But the nature of what punk had become and the incoherence of his aggression created a situation where this farce was the epicenter of a load of actual needless violence, having mm. having roused a particular rabble who would be better off passed out drunk. And that's what mm. happens when you fuck around with this stuff, right? Like nihilism and and aggression and trying to redeem the irredeemable. And I do feel bad for him because you can't even say, oh, he should have known better. Because he Mm. he didn't know anything. (laughs) He was hopeless. And he Mm. was trying his best to do something positive, Mm. right? But in the same way that he was trying his best to make a good record. And that didn't fucking work either. So (laughs) it just so happens this ended up as an excuse for a lot of people to kick each other's heads in, you know, some of whom weren't even enjoying it. I don't know. I've I've got fond memories of this song. Mm. This was another song that electrified the playground when I was 10. Yeah, that I can believe. I think it was the line, kids like me and you! The Yorkwood lilt of it. Which is a brilliant thing to shout across the playground. Which makes no sense at all, of course, because as friend (laughs) of the show, Phil Ramsden, was saying on Facebook recently, uh, the... Oh, Phil. Yeah, it's... Surely, if these angels with dirty faces are kids like me and you, there's no way that they can come from places you don't want to go. Because Mm. (laughs) by definition, they would already be in those places. But I like that bit as well. Because I came from a place that that other people didn't want to go, simply because there was fuck all there. It wasn't a dangerous area. Mm. Just had a couple of pubs and and a DIY store called Big D. Yeah. So if you weren't putting a shelf up, there was absolutely no reason to go where I lived. But I don't think Jimmy Percy was singing about the lack of leisure plazas <laughs> in his local community. He's obviously reaching no, something else. But no, I mean, of course not. The thing is, I think what winds me up about Jimmy Percy, something that Taylor hinted at, it's the same thing that winds me up about Steve Marriott from The Small Faces. And although... God, he's having to go at fucking Steve no, Marriott No, fucking no. I love The Small Faces. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> and I like Steve Marriott as well. But Steve Marriott had a slightly different background than Jimmy Percy, obviously. But there's a stage schooliness to it that there's an artful mm. dodgeriness to it and yeah, that yeah, yeah. just rubs me up the wrong way and I think Jimmy Percy's got that as well yes and I am watching Sham 69 I should say from the vantage point of now I don't think I was aware of them in 78 at all what I was mm. aware of was that increasingly those scary boneheaded cunts who scared the hell out of me and looked at me like they wanted to boot my head in you know had sham 69 tipex somewhere on the denim or tipex somewhere on the boots yeah so mm. I, I, it's difficult for me to dissociate it it's it, uh, regardless of what the band's music was about and regardless of what he's about it's weird it's mm. like it's like you know there's bands that i've never heard of 
that just seeing the name in a sense reminds me of that fear. It's like I've never heard the Angelic Upstarts, right? Right. <laughs> but, but there's a name. Do you know what I mean? You know the kind of people mm. who have that on their jackets. And for me, yeah. that's it. They, they are now verboten. They are now part of that set of bands where the fans scared the hell out of me as a kid. So, yeah, I don't bother investigating uh. or, or really being fair on them, perhaps. Yeah. Uh. Martin yeah. Stevenson and the Dainties. No, that's, that wasn't. <laughs> yeah, it's but it, it's it's a bit of a conundrum in some ways because, like, what can you say? You can't say, "Oh, mate, Jim, you should have stayed at home watching Ski Sunday." Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. writing sandbaggers slash fiction. Um, even though that's kind of true, because on the one hand, you know, you can't coddle culture like that. You have to let things happen. Mm. And sometimes they unfold as a as a mini disaster, you know. Mm. The problem is that this is a country which encourages, or at least used to encourage, uh, free expression and involvement while never sorting out its deeper problems. And sometimes that mm. throws up a mess like this or, you know, a more serious one on a grander scale where mm. people who've not been given the means or the information to understand things... I wouldn't want to take away the good times from anyone who was not a cunt and was genuinely mm. thrilled to be represented by Sham 69. I mean, mm. if they were truly inspired to do anything other than put the boot in, then hooray, hooray. But it's less than optimal. And in a way, you can blame them because if you're trying to express like suburban working class fury and it was that's that's a key thing about Sham 69 this is not city music this is suburban mm. music you can do it like sham or you can do it like the jam right and yeah i think if you compared the audiences of those two groups you'd find a lot of kids from similar backgrounds but i think you could probably split that down the middle and the ones who were thick and horrible and the ones who weren't as thick and horrible, it would be an almost perfect split as to which group they followed. Mm. Um, because, I mean, jam fans had a sort of, like, at least a sense of culture. Do you know what I mean? Even if they were horrible dickheads. Mm. Whereas sham fans were almost reveling in their lack of it. And, you know, mm. I don't know how much of that was each band rallying the audience that suited them, that was there already, and how much of it was encouraged uh, by mm. their respective approaches to their work and the way they engage with the audience. And you can't say Jimmy Percy didn't try yeah, to, yeah. To, to, mm. to disassociate his band from his band. But, I mean, what he didn't understand is, first of all, he didn't have the intelligence to do that in a way that was going to work. And secondly, when you consciously start playing the Pied Piper to legions of angry, mm. frustrated, uneducated kids, and this is the tone you're taking, you really need mm. to be smarter than Jimmy Percy to pull it off. He's got a red and black plaid shirt with white braces on. He's also got a very chunky Rock Against Racism badge. Mm. And this is what would cause no end of shit for the band yeah. as time went on. Because mm. they would play the Rock Against Racism gig uh, a, a couple of months from now. Yeah, yeah you know, the yeah. big open air one. Yeah, and the harder they tried to extricate themselves from that, 
the more the, the more mm. their fans got angry about it and started more fights at their gigs. It's like rather than thinking, oh, I don't like Sham anymore, yeah, because they're anti-racist. Yeah. They still went to the gigs, but just got really pissed off about it. <laughs> also, someone should tell him it's rude to point. if anyone wants to see the other side of jimmy percy find his appearance on tv show riverside which i think has been raised before but yeah riverside Mm, video playlist being the most early 80s tv show that there ever was that it looks like Mm. an overly clever parody of 1982 made recently yes Um, and yeah there's percy giving it the full walking against the wind, doing his uh, theatrical mime. <laughs> his tragedy continues. Like, he turns his back on the misery of Sham and tries to learn a lesson from it and thinks, what can I do that is the complete opposite of the horror I've just managed to get myself out of? But it doesn't work because he can't shake the fundamental misapprehension that he has this creativity which needs to be expressed no, no, mm. sorry, no. If it, look, if it, it was that attitude that was around at the time of anyone can do it, right? No, if anyone yeah. could do it, there'd be no point in anyone doing it. Mm. It's like you don't, you don't get people going on TV giving demonstrations of how to fucking breathe in and out, do you? No, because everyone can do it. Britain's got breathers. <laughs> but, I mean, you, you say all that, but it's clear that Jimmy Percy, bless him, is putting his heart and soul into this performance when he, he falls onto the floor, when he collapses onto the floor, just like James Brown. Yeah, or Bobby Davro. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Am I wrong in thinking? Isn't, you said Jim Bowen. Isn't Lionel Blair in that clip at all? I'm trying to remember I it. I think he is. Yeah. yeah. Cheggers is the one I remember the most because he's going, oh, Bobby, Bobby. (laughs) (laughs) So the following week, Angels with Dirty Faces dropped 11 places to number 35, then soared 16 places to number 19, then went down to number 35, then up again to number 24, and then out of the top 40. The charts, what you like. Bouncy, bouncy. Yes. The follow-up. If the kids are united, got to number nine for two weeks in August, and they close out 1978 with Oreo Pare getting to number 10 in November. I quite like that one. Yeah. I do. I quite like it. <laughs> just because just it's so, you know, if you're going to do that, just do have a gang of lads going, we're going down a pub. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? You might as well go all in. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie Claps. So that's Shan 69 and Angels with the Dirty Faces. And that's the number 24 sound. And number one, they're still there. Boney M and Rivers of Babylon. Blackburn affects concern for the prone Jimmy Purse before laying the number one single upon us, 
Rivers of Babylon by Boney M. Formed in Offenbach, Bieber, West Germany in 1975 by Frank Farian, a singer-turned-producer, Boney M consisted of Maisie Williams, a Montserrat-born Birmingham-based model who won Miss Black Beautiful a couple of years ago, Marcia Barrett, a Jamaican-born Germany via Croydon-based singer, Liz Mitchell, a Jamaican-born London-raised singer who represented West Germany as part of the Les Humphreys singer in the 1978 Eurovision Song Contest, and Bobby Farrell, who was born in Aruba, served in the Dutch Navy and was working as a DJ in Germany, who were all put together to perform Farian's tunes on tele while he continued to have his less disco-fied career. Their debut single, Baby Do You Want a Bump, a disco version of Al Capone by Prince Buster, only became a hit in the Netherlands, but the follow-up Daddy Cool went to number one all over Western Europe and became their first UK hit when it got to number six in February of 1977, kicking off a run of four top ten hits in that year. This is the follow-up to Belfast, which got to number 8 in December of 1977, and is a double-A side with Brown Girl in the Ring. It's a cover of the 1970 Roots single by the Melodians, which was best known for being part of the soundtrack of the 1972 film The Harder They Come. It was the highest new entry at number 21 a month ago, then soared 19 places to number 2, then knocked Night Fever by the Bee Gees off number 1, and is now at its third week at the toppermost of the poppermost. <laughs> 1978 is supposed to be the year of Travolta, but this is the one group that, that, that sold more than anybody else that year. Oh, yeah. Boney M, symbol of Free West. Um, <laughs> I mean, they really were for me. They, they actually gained in importance a few years after this in 82 on my first trip to India, which I keep going mm. on about, but it was an important trip for me. But I remember that, you know, westernized kid in India, vainly searching around for symbols of the West to cling to little totems <laughs> back home. And there weren't much about, you know, no. I did discover in India thumbs up cola which is fantastic fantastic drink um what's the difference between thumbs up and coca-cola then not a lot not a lot there's no real difference i I couldn't detect much of it i mean the crucial thing was it tasted a bit like coke it wasn't as horribly toxic and uh, chemically as panda pops but it tasted a bit like coke and it looked like a coke bottle and you know in a a sea of indianness which i should have been appreciating of course it was a godsend i also found bread one day which I, I was missing toast like fuck. Um, and I found this weird bread that they sold in India. I mean, this is pre-very westernised India in a sense. Not many people had TV mm. sets. Um, whereas now they're actually more Western than us in an odd way. But um, mm. yeah, so bread was a real revelation, even though it tasted like it had been made with condensed milk. And, and the two albums, the two Western records that my family owned in, in Bombay were... Yeah, Lip Sync's Funky Town 12-inch and <laughs> Night Flight to Venus by Boney M. Hey. Wow. I don't know how they'd got there. I suspect, because I we had, we did have relatives in Germany, that maybe that right. was how they made their way over there. But Night Flight to Venus became a touchstone as a kind of symbol of free West whilst mm. I was over in India. But in 78, I mean, they were massive. They were everywhere to the point where, you know, I mean, that, you said it's a double A side with Brown Girl in the ring. 
I remember there being a bit of confusion about that as to which one was the A and which one was the B. Um, mm. And Brown Girl in the Ring, I have really bad memories of because Brown Girl in the Ring invariably is a catchy, nursery rhymey type song was sung at me as the only brown kid in the class quite oh, often. Man. So it's got that association with me. In fact, School and Boney M, they seem intimately associated in my consciousness because this song, Rivers of Babylon, it's like a school song. It's like yes. The Ink is Black or Kumbaya or, or something yes. like that. So it's inevitable that Frank Farian would try and discify it. Um, and in a weird way, though, kind of definitive of 78. Boney Emma strangely dated even then. They're a 60s style group, really, entirely put together by an impresario. And mm. this song is sort of strangely haunting lyrically, a song about slavery that gets to number one. It's, yes. it's a bit crazy. I mean, watching this... As a kid, certainly Bobby would have been the main draw for, for anyone watching Boney M. And mm. he doesn't really get much to do no. um, in this. I would argue that um, a spoken word interlude over the humming bit um, would have improved it, that Bobby could have done. All those Egyptians. Yeah. Well, I think he could have done the parts of Psalm 137, which the yes. lyrics of this are based on. Yeah, he could have added some of this, especially the line, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Yeah. That would have made for a potentially more interesting performance. But yeah, I, I <laughs> very much associate Boney M with school, with being bullied a little bit, not being bullied, but having a piss taken at me because of brown girl in the ring. Mm. But they were massive. And in a sense... Really, it's telling that they end this episode because what a global episode this has been. Yes. Ireland, Israel, a lot of European stuff and US stuff. You know, mm. yes, we invented punk the week, the year before or a couple of years before, but this is a very globalised chart, if you like, which is yeah. going to change as we get towards the late 70s. Yeah. Um, there are some creepy facts, though, about Boney M, of course. I mean, mm. we all know that, you know, Bobby died on the same date and in the same city as Grigory Rasputin. Yes. Um, but there's in the same way. Little... <laughs> 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 but there's other creepy little numerical oddities with it as well. You know, the time between Rasputin's death and Boney M's hit of the same name was 61 years. How old was Bobby when he died? 61. Ooh. And if you match each letter for Rasputin and Bobby, and Bobby Farrell, yeah. his numerical place in the alphabet, they both total 118. Think about that. <laughs> Think about that. I mean, the song, as Neil's pointed yeah. out, is about Psalm 137 and the, the exile and subsequent slavery of 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, mm. which is pretty good going for a number one record. But in Britain, <laughs> we were all right with songs about slavery. They, they just whack them on. Because I remember... yeah. That DJs on uh, on the local radio station and on Radio One a year ago would play "96 Degrees in the Shade" by Third World, which is about a Jamaican rebellion which ended in violent suppression by the British and subsequent executions. They just whack that on whenever it was dead hot, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But this is also the era where you could buy music for pleasure LPs called Negro Spirituals for Children. You know that that yeah. that ancient slavery Fuck history yeah. was seen as fair game really yeah oh man they're just cashing in on roots yes <laughs> seriously because it, it it captured the popular imagination doesn't it mm. it's just sort of no subject where you can't just go oh people like this let's let's do let's do that 
Yeah. 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 I mean, they've toned down the lyrics of the original and they they took out the overt raster references. But, you know, all that was completely lost on me because, you know, I'm at this time when I'm still not catching lyrics properly. Mm. And I thought it was about a picnic by the river or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, you would. And and one lyric that I really didn't understand was, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Because I thought that was, How shall we sing the Lord's song in Australia? (laughs) (laughs) that would be tricky too i mean yes you're right bobby has calmed down a a bit in this one there's not a lot he could have done yeah yeah. there really no without without somewhat detracting from the at least residual seriousness of this song yeah i mean this is this is your non-ors number one isn't it i think the non-ors have come out for this i don't know i have the same response when i see this now as when I saw it as a kid, which is basically, what is this? <laughs> what is this supposed to be? Mm, yeah. Because one of the best things about Boney M, from our perspective in the 21st century, is how few of the decisions made by, or rather made on their behalf, bear any resemblance at all to any decisions that would be made in the equivalent situation today. Mm, mm. And even then, nothing about them made any sense. Right, People just accepted that what they perceived to be junk pop, um, especially German junk pop, would be ludicrous and not properly thought through. Mm. So it's like, oh, yeah, right, you know. But in fact, it's far more interesting than that. Um, Because if you're just randomly chucking stuff out without thinking about it because you don't take your work seriously, which I think is what a lot of people assume to be true here – the results do not look like this, mm. even in 1978, right? This weird, like the choice of material, <laughs> Painter Man and mm, yeah. King of the Road. Yeah, yeah. Songs about, you know, Rasputin and Belfast and Mar Barker. Mm. Um, the choice of band members, none of them particularly sexy or sold as personalities. And they're not singers, really, so... The choice of band name, we, <laughs> the, the decision to call their awkward fifth album Boo Noo Noo News, <laughs> which they did. And just the the the, the planet-smashing inanity of songs like Hooray, Hooray, yes. It's a Holly mm. Holly Day. Mm. It's just, it re, it's what the fuck, you know, is the Boney M secret. Mm. The, the more what the fuck they got... Uh, the better they were, Hmm. which is why this one, I think, is slightly underwhelming because it's probably their least weird and least interesting hit. It's unusual, but it's not baffling and it's not freaky. It's just a catchy song which feels about a thousandth as weighty as it probably should considering its provenance. And it's difficult to dislike. I mean, people did, Mm. but... I think they were probably trying quite hard. Yeah. But equally, it's pretty difficult to have any strong positive feelings towards this single. It's just thinly nice, you know, which is fair enough. Yeah. But, you know, Night Flight to Venus is a lot more fun. Mm. Mm. So this is the spaceship Boney M. And they do a big countdown at the start and then blast off into yeah, space. Yeah. Fucking <laughs> great. No, this is a prime example of a, of a band who've established themselves and you get the feeling that whatever they put out next is a nailed on number one. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, because it's going to be competently produced and well sung. So, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. And they've got enough of a fan base that are going to jump on it as soon as it comes out. But even as a kid, I missed, you know, I wanted Daddy Cool and, and Rasputin and those weird songs. Yeah. More than I wanted this. Yeah. Anything else to say about this? No, weirdly, no. Yeah. No, if we if we had a more juicy number, if we had Rasputin or Marbach, there would be more to say. This is this is a flat song. It's a mm. square song. It, it's four by four. All yeah. the way, you know, and it just stays there. Yeah, and you can't really do anything to it either. I mean, the performance is four mic stands, four people standing behind them, yeah. all dressed up nicely in their bony M togs, just getting on with it. And it's got the reek of a Christmas song to it as well, hasn't it? Yeah. It has, yeah, definitely. So Rivers of Babylon would spend two more weeks at number one before giving way to You're the One That I Want, then spent five weeks slowly sliding down the charts to number 20. But then, in late July, DJ started flipping the record and playing Brown Girl in the Ring, which sent it back up again. And by the second week of September, it was back at number two, held off number one by three times a lady by the Commodores. They fucked up there, didn't they, having two songs like this on the same slab of vinyl? Yeah, I mean, both of those separately could have been number ones, probably. Mm. Um, should have made them both A-sides, separated the singles out and given them crap B-sides. The following month, the follow-up, Rasputin spent two weeks at number two, held off number one by Summer Nights. In all, Rivers of Babylon slash Brown Girl in the Ring spent 40 weeks in the UK charts, 19 weeks in the top 10, and would close out the year as the biggest selling single of 1978 in the UK. By which time their third and final single of 1978, Mary's Boy Child, spent virtually the whole of December at the top of the charts. And of course, Rivers of Babylon received the ultimate tribute that month when it was parodied on A Taste of Agro by the Baron Knights. (laughs) There's a dentist in Birmingham. Possibly the Baron Knights' finest moment. Sad news, no top of the pops next week because of the World Cup on the soccer, but we'll be back with you in a couple of weeks' time, so see you then. Thanks for watching. We're going to play out with Rod Stewart and Ole Ola. See you in a fortnight. Bye-bye. When the blue shirts run out in Argentina Shattered, you can't take it Automatically, you reach out for the Tone it now resigned to the fact that he's not going to get to hug a womble or have a bite of a banana from a lovely lady gibbon breaks the news that (laughs) unbelievably there is no top of the pops next week due to quote the world cup and the soccer (laughs) <laughs> the World Cup and the soccer. Yes. Yeah. This, to my estimation, is only the second time that a sporting event has got in the way of Top of the Pops. The first one, July 28th, 1966, for the World Cup third place match between Portugal and the USSR. 
after pissing on our chips, he signs off with Ole Ola Mulher Brasileira by Rod Stewart and the 1978 Scotland World Cup squad. We've already covered Scotland in chart music number 27, and this single, only the second in their 105-year career, as they were very much an albums act, is the follow-up <laughs> to Easy Easy, which got to number 20 in June of 1974. After four years touring Czechoslovakia, Liverpool, and a gig at Wembley where their fans went a bit sham 69 on the goalposts, they signed to Reva Records, the label owned by Billy Gaff, who teamed them up with a singer he was managing, Rod Stewart, whose last single, Hot Legs, got to number five in February of this year. Stuart, a vociferous supporter of Scotland despite being born in London, was delighted to be roped in to sing a partial cover of the Ivaldo Gouveia song that was a hit in Brazil this year, on the condition that he join the squad via helicopter at their pre-World Cup camp in Dunblane and get involved in their training session for the video, which was a bit rich of him, considering that when members of the squad were forced to travel down to London to record their bit, Stuart wasn't there and they had to sing their bits around a cardboard cutout of Rod perched on a stool. (laughs) Although there's already been an official spoiler record, Ali's Tartan Army by Andy Cameron that got to number six last month, it's crashed into the chart this week at number 25 and as it's too late to get the band into the studio, here's a look at some credits over the studio lights while we listen to the sultry Scottish samba beat. (laughs) Well, before we even get into the song, no top of the pops makes 10-year-old Al Needham angry. Uh, (laughs) I know it's the World Cup, but nothing should be allowed to get in the way of top of the pops. Particularly at Top of the Pops in 1978. They could have shoved it on BBC Two, couldn't they? Well, I'm looking at the schedule for next Thursday. World Cup Grandstand starts at 10 to 6 until 9 o'clock. Right. But, you know, fuck the news, stick it on then. Or knob off Des O'Connor afterwards, because he's only got Kenny Rogers, Kelly Monteith and Larry Grayson on. Uh-huh. Or, you know, just put it on BBC Two instead of Gardner's World. Fuck's sake. <laughs> so, the single. I mean, mystery solved. That's why Scotland's doing a song with Brazilian woman in the title. But, you know, the question remains, why are they doing a fucking Brazilian song for the Argentinian World Cup? It's all the same, isn't it? It, It's the same thing we were talking about when we were talking about Japanese boy. You know, that was the Far East, innit? Yes. This is South America, innit? Mm. Al, you mentioned that that when the Scottish people, uh, when the Scottish team had to record their bit, they did it around Mm. a cardboard cutout of Rod. Yes, have you seen the photos of that? Yes. <laughs> There's something really disturbing about those photos. Yes. Because it, the, the cutout is too real. It, yes. looks like, it looks like it's been cut in half yes. in some sort of Damien Omen 2 type scenario. It's horrific. Really yeah. disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. Born and raised about five minutes walk from where I used to live Ooh. in North London. Yeah. Though never, as far as I know, subjected to a Tebbit cricket test. Yes. I can forgive Rod quite a lot because you have to. Mm. And because that's all, almost his thing, isn't it? He's the kind of bloke where he's like, he's a bad boy, yeah. but a cheeky smile yes. is meant to wipe the slate clean every time. And the truth is, up until about, up until about 1974, the album Smiler, he was very easy to forgive. Yeah. 
But after that, it does get harder, and you have to be very selective. He did a lot of great stuff after that, but he turned into this kind of dickhead, mm. not to put too fine a point on it. Um, the bad material got worse, and by 1978, I mean, this is right at the end of that period where he was still making good records on a regular basis, Yeah, you know. So by the time this one comes at you like a Graham Souness tackle, <laughs> you're, you're not really, you're just not prepared to keep on forgiving no. him. Mm. Uh, and you just, you know, you are right at that point of just thinking, fucking shove it up your wiggling ass, cock nose. <laughs> Now, if you're a pop-crazed Caledonian, chances are you're not even watching this episode because the STV region are currently screening Argentina, Here We Come, which was the live broadcast from Hampden Park where the Scotland World Cup squad are currently driving around the pitch in an open-top bus waving at people who've spent 50p for the privilege (laughs) of looking at Joe Jordan and the like. (laughs) <laughs> do you remember anything about the 1978 world cup yeah i think it was probably the first world cup where i did get to see some matches um, mm. um and yeah and i remember faint visions of ticker tape everywhere and some of the yeah. matches on archie gemmel and some other moments yeah it was probably the first world cup that i was cognizant of certainly wasn't cognizant of the 74 one but yeah i'm awake i'm watching football i'm about five or six years old yeah it's coming flooding back and actually you mm. know this song um, I know it's probably awful, isn't it, by any reasonable <laughs> metric, but I don't know, it's been in my head all week. It's kind of catchy yeah. as football records go, um, yes. you know? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I will hold against it, although this is probably just Frank Skinner bullshitting, but I remember Frank Skinner saying that the reason he wrote yes. Three Lions was because of this, and I fucking hate Three Lions for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, me too. Um, it's bullshitting. It would have been It would have been Alice Tartan Army. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where he reminded us that England can he do it because they didn't need qualifying. <laughs> oh, wait till we get to that one. Fucking hell. I, I kind of like it when World Cup records take on the stereotypical racial connotations to do with the place that they're going to, um, to play in this tournament. Yeah. And I look forward to that in the future. Which this one doesn't. Well, it gets it a bit wrong, but it's all South America, isn't it? Tango, Sambo, who cares? Yeah, it's like the night, if they'd done a 1974 one called Belgian girl. <laughs> or it's like if someone in South America had released a, a single for the 1966 World Cup, which was all like accordions and like, <laughs> we are going to England. Yes. Yeah. The video was shown on the STV documentary show that's going to be on a couple of nights from now called World at Their Feet. Yes. Which, oh, 60 minutes of hubris, isn't it? It's, it's quite remarkable. Yeah. And it's the worst part of that documentary as well. Because that documentary is is fucking great. Yes. A really queasy, lingering look at that old Scotland, right? All Mm. dark and frightening. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? With all these old fellas with faces like butter that's been left out. (laughs) Or, you know, full of reflux. (laughs) This landscape looks like 1970s Poland, but more violent. Yes. And they interview all these blokes with, like, you know, cans of tart and bitter in their fists. They were spunking their life savings on a trip to Argentina. Whoa. Two grand, which is about £11,500 now. Yeah. Just totally 
totally confident that Scotland yeah. are going to win the World Cup. Because there was a general feeling that Scotland had a chance. I mean, you know, Ali McLeod was, was banging on relentlessly that Scotland were going to win it. And, you know, this song is just as boisterous about that. Yeah. But there was a feeling that Scotland were going to do all right in this one. I was really looking forward to seeing Scotland, mainly because there were three Forest players in mm. there. You know, Archie Gamble, Kenny Burns and the, the sacred Robbo. John McGovern couldn't even get in the squad, could he? No, no. It's, it is amazing how many good players Scotland had in the 70s. Oh, yeah. In the 70s, if you had a football team and you wanted to win something, you, if you haven't got any Scotland players, then don't fucking bother, mate. Mm. All the top English teams had at least three. Yeah. Which, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know or care, in fact, Scotland crashed out in the group stage, having been held to a draw by Iran and thrashed by Peru. Uh, after which, according to legend, the llama at Glasgow Zoo had to be placed <laughs> under 24-hour guard for fear of recriminations. Um, these being teams that the manager had not even bothered to research. A uh, bit of an oversight, seeing as Peru had uh, Teofio Kubias playing for them, who was one of the best players in the world and proceeded to absolutely crucify them in the game. Yeah bit of an oversight but I think that's the thing we're saying that Scotland had all these great players and they always always underachieved at international level because when those players were playing for top English teams they had canny managers usually Scottish canny Mm. managers and proper organization and it was just a professional setup whereas by all accounts the Scotland national team kind of wasn't this whole trip to Argentina notoriously disorganized and unprofessional yeah in retrospect the the received wisdom is that everyone thought scotland had a really good chance of winning the world cup that's how i remember it Mm. and i remember everyone in england like the same way in 1994 (laughs) everyone in england pretended that they were irish in 1978 everyone was pretending they were scottish and like blue peter was doing stuff about hey let's all wish scotland great you know Good yeah, they had a competition, didn't they, for a, for a, was it a poster or something? And it was the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah, it was the Loch Ness Monster in a, in a Tam O'Shanter. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> showing that English people could see past the stereotypes. Yes. Um, <laughs> but all the Scottish people, and I've got quite a lot of Scottish mates, but they're all, like, around my age. So if they can remember this World Cup, they were kids. So they were fully signed up. Yeah. to this idea that Scotland were probably going to win oh, the World the Cup. Just like trauma. they were fully signed up to the idea that Father Christmas was going to come down their chimney. Yeah. I don't really know mm. if, you know, seasoned pundits honestly thought Scotland were likely to win that World Cup. Oh, well, hold it, hold that oh, thought. Oh, unless, of course, you know better. <laughs> I actually have the uh, TV Times right. from the following week which has a 16-page World Cup special. (laughs) The first article is, What Chance Scotland? (laughs) Ron Greenwood, the World Cup is one of the most open for years, and if a little fortune smiles on Scotland, they could go all the way to the final. I don't see any particular dangers in their group. I should think (laughs) Scotland and Holland will qualify. Matt Busby, I don't put it past Scotland to win the World Cup. Sticking his neck out there. Yeah. Brian Clough, Scotland's chances, I hope that, I don't do a Brian Clough impression, I refuse to. (laughs) Scotland's chances, I hope they're good because there are nearly 60 million people in Britain hanging on to their performance in Argentina. 
It doesn't matter whether you're Scottish, English, Welsh, Irish or nationalist Chinese. Everyone in Britain is going to share in their success or weep at their disappointments, if they have any. Mm. I interviewed John Robertson a few years ago, who was part of the squad, played in the Iran game. And I said to him, did you know? Did you and the rest of the team really think you were going to win the World Cup? And he said, no, <laughs> never in a million years. We just wanted to get out of the group stage. Yeah, yeah. That would have been enough. Yeah. Of course, it goes without saying that TV times are pushing out every conceivable boat for this World Cup. Mm. The latest issue contains a 16-page pullout, including a wall chart, of course. Uh, but they've also got the team of Dave Lanning and Leslie Salisbury, who are totally on the case for Argentina 78. Obviously, Dave is all about the football. His preview for a a week tomorrow's match between Italy and France says, the live action on Friday between Italy and France has a red-hot garlic feel about it. (laughs) After all the garlic, more than a touch of haggis with soccer celebrity squares. An all Scottish (laughs) list of celebrities, except for Lone Sassanax, Bob Monkhouse and Dickie Davis. Scottish soccer stars Lou Macquarie and Derek Johnson will be there, hoping to avoid bringing anyone down in this box. (laughs) But Leslie Salisbury puts the ladies at ease. Don't worry, girls. Not all the beefcake on the box this week is wearing football boots. (laughs) And what mere leather ball chaser can really compare with Sean Connery, Michael Caine, John Wayne, Fred Astaire, or even the lovely Benny Hill and Leslie Crowther? (laughs) So we girls have the best of both worlds. Dishy soccer men to ogle, as well as the giants of entertainment to enjoy. Oh, and the recipe page this week contains haggis, which is the perfect World Cup snack for a Saturday evening in June. I'll wager. <laughs> There's a bad name, the Dishy Soccer Men. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so, you know, we, we don't get to see Kenny Burns in a shirt with all ruffles up the sleeve or Gordon McQueen as mm-hmm. Carmen Miranda. It's, it's a fly's eye view of the lights, which is, you know, pretty much what Scotland will be seeing after they've been beaten by Peru (laughs) got to be pointed out it wasn't a good World Cup for Rod because a week from today on the eve of Scotland's opening match against Peru he was in a restaurant in Buenos Aires when a gunfight broke out he ended up having to hide under a table (laughs) and then he was barred from getting on the plane to Cordoba for the Peru game because he hadn't brought his passport even though he wasn't leaving the country fascists (laughs) but um, Scotland youth coach at the time Andy Roxburgh managed to lean on the Jobsworth to let him on the plane after the game when Scotland lost uh, Roxburgh was going back to Buenos Aires bumped into Rod who hugged him and said I think it is goodbye to the World Cup Endsville (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and there's no record of him attending the other two games. That's terrible. I mean, I, I've looked at the footage of the Iran game and I, I can't see Rod Stewart ripping his shirt off and, and throwing it on the ground and spitting at the team bus. So, <laughs> you know. But it, well, I mean, you know, that campaign, it's all about that Gemmel moment in the Holland game because that, yes. that's an amazing goal. That forest goal, yeah. He, that forest goal. But I mean, you know, it, it is bizarre. I mean, how how much the Scotland team actually became a part of the national life in a sense? Because I remember Joe Jordan being in Heineken adverts and stuff yes. that the whole country got to see. 
you know. Mm. So, yeah. Very, and the Chrysler advert. And the Chrysler advert. But didn't Chrysler pull their sponsorship yes. halfway yes, through did, the yes. tournament because they were doing yeah. so shit? You're not living yeah. up to the copywriters' claims. Yes. There's a real spinal tap moment back at the <laughs> Tebow Hotel there. Someone comes in and goes, just throws a bit of paper down on the table and cries, I drop their sponsorship. It's just <laughs> the, the gloom settling over the room. <sighs> but I, it's got to be said that the Scotland run in the 1978 World Cup is probably my favourite run of any team in any World Cup. I mean, I've got no affiliation to Scotland at all, but it's so upsetting that they didn't beat Holland mm. by a couple more goals. Because you'd have loved to see now that had gone on in the second round. I think when they went out, it, 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 the, the, that World Cup lost something. Yeah. Oh. And this was like a last hurrah as well, wasn't it? Like time was really running out for Scottish football. Partly, mm. I think, because uh, so many Scottish players of that generation were extraordinarily unhealthy. Uh, yes. Not just by the standards of professional athletes, uh, nor even by the standards of ordinary men in their 20s and early 30s, <laughs> just by human standards generally. Yeah. Um, I mean, the really big stars by that point were, you know, as fit as anyone. But the general footballing culture still decreed that that not drinking 15 pints a night and <laughs> eating deep-fried oven scrapings as your pre-match <laughs> meal was tantamount to performing fellatio. And this was, you know, this was fine in the days when match fitness just meant not actually being fat. And, uh, you know, never mind if your face looked like head cheese. But by 1978, the rest of the world was was already starting to cheat by eating properly. (laughs) Eating pasta. Getting enough rest. Yeah. By dreaming up fiendish, cowardly things called tactics. And it was was already too late, wasn't it? And it, it was terrible because for a while, Scotland was a small country which genuinely punched above its weight in football yeah. you know like holland you know or like belgium is now definitely and this was the thing because people were going well holland did it the last time why not scotland yeah the difference between those cases like those very different stories tells you quite a lot of things that you already knew about the contrast between a pragmatic and resourceful benelux mentality and mm. one which was for all its protests, essentially British. Yeah. And uh, that was basically their undoing. Yeah, it was the arrogance of it. And like you said, hubris. I mean, they went out there nine to one to win it, which is crazy when you think about it. But the one good thing to say about the single is it works in one of the biggest cliches in football songs and it just passes you by. The football whistle, because it's a samba song. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, you see? (laughs) <laughs> and we've not even mentioned the, the rhyming of Ola with Over There. <laughs> or Buenos Aires yeah. with Fairies. Or whatever it is. <laughs> the best bit in that documentary, The World at Their Feet, is where they're talking to the Scotland fans and they say to him, so why are you such a big fan of Scotland? And he says, well, they got a tartan gimmick, haven't they? <laughs> England ain't got a tartan gimmick. What you rap a rap a Union Jack? You, you look posh. Yeah, that's stupid. <laughs> stupid. So the following week, Ole Ola Malé Brasileira jumped 
eight places to number 17. And the week after that, despite a disastrous gig in Cordoba and band member Willie Johnson walking out due to drug problems, <laughs> it soared 13 places to number four, its highest position. Why did they leave it so late to release it? Could have gone higher. Yeah. After their tour of Argentina was cut short in disarray, they wouldn't release a follow-up until 1982 when they teamed up with John Gordon Sinclair and B.A. Cunterson for We Have a Dream, which got to number five in May of 1982. Meanwhile, for his follow-up, Stewart did some more nicking off Brazilian people when Die You Think I'm Sexy, with a chorus that was a blatant nick of Taj Mahal by Jorge Ben, got to number one for a week in the beginning of December. But Stewart would reunite with the band in 1996 for the single Purple Heather, which got to number 16 in June of that year. And that pop craze youngsters closes the book on this episode of top of the pops what's on telly afterwards well bbc one kicks on with the police sitcom rose then it's the proto terry and june happy ever after after the nine o'clock news it's a repeat of des o'connor tonight featuring marty kane and some americans i've never heard of that was a repeat on next week des o'connor oh. <laughs> they could have put top of the pops on them for fuck's sake a late night top of the pops oh, can man. you imagine can you imagine what boney m would have got up to after the watershed <laughs> <laughs> after that it's face values a documentary series about the various rituals maintained by different societies featuring prince charles <laughs> and they round off with tonight where Dennis Tui sends us off to bed by telling us that there are enough nuclear devices in the world to provide a package of four tons of TNT for every living human being. Wow. Still not enough. Sleep well, children. (laughs) BBC Two takes us to the Royal Park's nurseries so we can watch 14,000 flower bulbs being planted (laughs) in Gardner's world. Then we're treated to some naturalists and archaeologists dossing around Mendip in the series In Deepest Britain. At nine o'clock, it's the midweek film, the 1938 Jeanette MacDonald and Nelson Eddy flick Sweethearts, then it's King of the Movies, a documentary on the Hollywood director Henry King in advance of BBC Two's upcoming seasons of his films. After late news on two, Mervyn Levy bangs on about the portrait of Henri Matisse by André Durain in Close Down. ITV eventually plunges into this week, where Jonathan Dimbleby looks at the trial of Dr Yuri Orlov, who has just been banged up in a Soviet labour camp for founding a human rights group. Then it's the news at 10, a repeat of the cuckoo waltz, then Robert Morley compares the 1978 Pie Colour TV Awards, with gongs being lobbed out by Patrick Cargill, Russell Harter, Mick Robertson and Neris Hughes. <laughs> And they finish up with a repeat of the Burt Reynolds cop show, Dan August. So, boys, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? Oh, lots to talk about. Ian Jory. Loads. Thin Lizzy and Sabbath. Mm. I'll be majorly talking yeah. about all of those. Yeah, I'm Rod Stewart because you mentioned football. <laughs> what are we buying on Saturday? Uh, um, the aforementioned artists. Um, <laughs> Ian Jory, I think definitely. Um, Lizzy. Sabs and Blondie. Yeah. Uh, Elliman. Mm, possibly Tavares. Mm. Mm. 
And what does this episode tell us about May of 1978? Disco, 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 disco. With mm. rock fighting a rear guard action. Mm. We'll fight them on the beaches with our metal and our weirdness and our shit refried punk music. Um, mm. But before we start getting full of ourselves towards the late 70s and into the 80s, we are in essence in 78, just another pop nation and Europe and US are dominating us. I mean, I think this is a blinding episode and I, I just can't believe we haven't touched upon 1978 more. Maybe it's because there's there's not a lot of shit to hone our critical abilities upon. <laughs> well, it's odd. The, the normal ratios are kind of flipped in this episode. Normally we come yeah. to an episode and it's like, let's find the gold amidst, amidst the shit. Um, in yeah. this, it's reversed. There's the odd shit record, yeah. yeah, but mainly it's good stuff. What a time to be 10 years old. Speak for yourself. I was a... Uh... <laughs> considerably uh, yeah but Taylor 1978 you being a bit too young for this sort of thing do you think you've missed out uh no because I got to be 10 years old uh, in the Aventis uh, it was even better and that pop craze youngsters is the end of this episode of chart music usual promotional flange www.chart-music.co.uk facebook.com slash chart music podcast reach out to us on twitter at chart music t-o-t-p video playlist bit.ly slash chart music vids money down the g-string patreon.com slash chart music thank you ever so taylor parks that's all right god bless you neil kulkarna goodbye friends my name's al needham panties (laughs) (laughs) chart music great big owl.com my name's jason fleming The More Than My Past podcast will see me talking to a wide range of inspiring people. People who have confronted and overcome addiction or imprisonment or both and turned their lives around. I did mad things that was hurting myself and hurting other people. Everybody grows up in a house called normal. Heroin addiction and chaos was my normal. Some people don't understand the word moderation and uh, I was definitely one of those people. The More Than My Past podcast. Greetings, rock-crazed youngsters, and welcome to the latest edition of Rock Expert David Stubbs! Rock Expert David Stubbs! Tonight, we're going all the way back to the year of our law, 1997, when rock expert David Stubbs put on his thermals, turned his face towards the wind, and trekked into the very heart of the blizzard of Oz. Sit back, open your ears, and bear witness to a no-holds-barred confrontation as rock Expert David Stubbs goes one-on-one with the Ozman, the Ozmeister, the Osvaldo Ardiles himself as Ozzy Osbourne finally breaks his silence about plant-based meat alternatives.
Just think, like, uh, last night I dreamt that I opened a suitcase and it was full of cocaine in my house, and I was like, whoa, whoa, I don't, what's this doing here, you know? That's wishful filming. No, it? no, it's, I, I don't, I, I mean, it's the last thing I would ever want to do. Mm. Well, yeah, usually that's what they say, though, isn't it? If you dream, I'm a vegetarian, I used to have dreams about meat, and that was because, although I didn't, wasn't going to start eating meat, it was the part of me. Did, did, did you ever eat meat? Yeah. When did but you become stopped. vegetarian? About 13 years ago. Um, you don't eat, you're vegan or, or you're vegetarian? Vegetarian, especially. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, we don't eat much no. meat in this area. We eat a little bit of turkey, but that's about no. it. Yeah. Do you, know, do, you know, do you know something about a turkey, which a lot of people don't know? A turkey is a, a rela- relation of a, of a, of a, a vulture. Mm. It's a relative of a vulture. You look at a vulture's head and neck mm. and look at a mm. turkey. It's a very, you can see the similarity. Yeah. But we eat a lot of that McCartney stuff here. It's all it's great. Have you tried it? Mm. It's really good. Yeah. There's a lot of products on the market. And I, I get this uh, vegetarian, there's a health shop, a good one in it, in Beaconsfield. I get these vegetarian curries, which are great. Mm. And soya. Mm. And I've, and I've got brown rice now that you don't have to boil yourself you can put it under the microwave it's out of a can you know anyway rock expert david stops rock expert david stops this episode of rock expert david stops has been brought to you in association with pledge.meatfreemondays.com pledge.meatfreemondays.com pledge. Meatfreemondays.com. You can do it right now, please. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.